Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Holy crap, it's here. This has taken me seven months of my life to complete, and I am super pleased how it turned out. What is Miguel talking about? It's my new book, Expat Secrets. You're going to be able to find it on Amazon right now. Let me just give you the full name of the book because I think it says a lot, okay? Expat Secrets, How to Make Giant Piles of Money, Live Overseas, and Pay Zero Taxes. Boom. I really like that. Basically, the book breaks down everything you need to know for leading an international life. This is timely information and modern, and it's a fun read. You can buy your copy right now by going to Amazon and searching Expat Secrets. This will really help support the show to grow. And if you want to be an awesome human being, what I want you to do is leave the book an honest review on Amazon. It actually makes a huge difference to new authors like me. Seriously, I mean this. Please get a copy of the book and please leave the book a review. It's just good karma. Okay, enjoy today's episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Expat Money Show. Today, we are really fortunate to have with us a very special guest from Australia who's now been living in Japan for the last 19 years. He's built two seven-figure businesses in Japan, and he's a private coach specializing on B2B sales funnels using LinkedIn. Recently, he's been awarded the official member of the Forbes Coaching Council. You can find him at masterclass.sellingmadesocial.com or on his LinkedIn Sales Funnel for Entrepreneurs Facebook page. Please welcome Tyron Giuliani. Tyron, how are you? Excellent. Thanks, mate. Really happy to be here. My pleasure to have you. So very first thing I want to say is happy birthday. Oh, yes. Tyron and I were supposed to go for beers in Japan this week. Then he seemed to remember that it's actually his birthday and he has plans with his family to go out for dinner. <laughs> so I really like that you were so focused on your business that you actually forgot your own birthday. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I mean, I'm turning 43 and I think literally for one year, I had made the mistake with my age and I had put an extra year on my age for maybe three years. I, in my mind, I was a certain age and I actually wasn't until a friend said, no, you're not. I was saying I was 42 and I was 41 at the stage. So I really had forgotten about my birthday. And it wasn't until you said, I'll meet up. And I was like, yeah, cool. And I was telling my wife, hey, this guy's going to come into town. I'll be able to meet him. She's the 12th. We're doing a birthday party for you with the family. I'm like, oh, all right. My birthday's the 14th. So yeah, it happens. <laughs> it happens. Well, that's entrepreneur mindset. You're so focused <laughs> on success and helping people that you forgot to, to take care of yourself. But that's good. I like that. So why don't you just take one minute and just kind of tell us a little bit about your backstory? 
Mm-hmm. Right. So my whole life, actually, I wanted to be one of two things. And I was either an army officer or a businessman. And that businessman actually meant to me when I was a little kid was actually prime minister of Australia or, you know, president in other countries. But I wanted to be the prime minister of Australia or an army man. That was, that's what I wanted. And I did everything to get actually into the army and get into army officer training. I went to Australia's equivalent of West Point and actually made connections with Australian politicians when I was in the army. And my goal was to do 15 odd years get to kind of colonel level, get out, and then go into politics in Australia and become Prime Minister of Australia. And that all came to a crashing halt after about four years in the Army and graduating from officer training. I got injured. I had multiple surgeries, three lots of surgeries on both legs, and was left with a permanent impairment in both my legs. And literally, when you're injured in the Army, people just, you know, you're young and you've spent all this time. I spent seven, eight years building up to get into the Army and then you know, you know, went to all the student councils and army cadets and all these extra activities to get that spot in the Australian Defence Force Academy. And when you get broken, you know, people kind of shy away from you because they realise that could happen to them. So I was really just depressed. I was just out of it. I, I had to move back to where my parents were living. It was just horrible. And I just needed to make a massive change in my life. You know, I had a midlife crisis. Basically, at 23 years of age, I had a midlife crisis. My whole dreams, goals, aspirations just crushed all around me. And all my mates were out doing fun stuff in the military. I know it sounds fun to say fun stuff in the military, but it's a pretty (laughs) good life. So I just came to Japan. I saw an article, read a news thing that said work in Japan. I went to an uh, event and literally seven to eight weeks after that event, I was in Japan. I landed in Japan. I knew nobody I spoke no language. I knew nothing about really about their history except World War II history because that's what I studied when I was in the military. And just, yeah, it was just a stupid move. <laughs> and I came with one suitcase, had a horrible first apartment. You can't believe how horrible it was. And that just drove me to like, I'm going to be successful here. I'm going to make it happen. And I'm going to use all the weaknesses um, I'm not going to focus on. I'm going to focus on the strengths that I have and what differentiates me in, in Tokyo And I'm going to build businesses from that. And, you know, fast forward 19 years and, yeah, you know, we've got a business now. One of the businesses has been running for 17 of those 19 years. It's a seven-figure annual business profits in the seven figures. And it's, you know, number one in its space. So, and, you know, helped grow another company to a seven-figure. So, I achieved it. That's incredible. So that just shows your ability to overcome obstacles straight off the bat. Did you learn those types of skills while being in the military college or do you think that those were those came from before? I think certainly from about 12 years old through all my teenage years, I was just focused on getting into the Australian Defence Force Academy, getting also getting a scholarship in there, so getting awarded a Commonwealth scholarship from the government as well. You know, they kind of they you secured a spot two years before you joined um, by going through all these testings and stuff. So I was always really focused on that goal. So when I picked a goal, I just focused on that. Even back then, 12 years old, 13, 14, I just, I did everything possible to get to that goal. And when I got it, you know, I achieved it, but then I got broken and that was hard. It was a good year of just you know, really to try to bounce back. I tried a few different things. I was day trading and this is back in 1996, right? So this is before a lot of, you didn't have that live computer stream. It was all like a 
a pager and things like that. And I tried so many different things and, you know, I had more surgery and I had rehab and I was in hospitals and it was just like, I had to make a change. I knew I had to make a change and I, I just did it. And I think when I got here again, it reignited that focus. And I, you know, I must admit for the first six months when I landed, I just did, you know, I messed around, you know. I just yeah, as you do at you know. 23, 24 years old. Right, right. So, uh, that's and, all I did for the first, for my 20s, I think, <laughs> while I was traveling. <laughs> right. So I did that. And after being in the military for so long, well, not so long, but my adult life was in the military. It was also breaking free and seeing a, a different type of people and engaging with different types of people. But then I, I quickly realized that I had to take action. That was what the military had taught me was, you know, you, you just, you've got to take action in situations. And I saw it as kind of a bit of an ambush. I had to attack. I couldn't just run away. I, if, you know, if you're caught in an ambush, caught in the killing zone, you turn into the enemy and you run at the enemy. That's what you get taught because you're going to be dead otherwise. So I thought the same thing, like, I've got to attack this. I'm here now. Uh, I've messed around for six months. Now it's time to get serious. Yeah, look get for opportunities. Work. Yeah. Look for the gaps and I didn't know the language. I st- my language is still horrible because, you know, I didn't focus on language building. I focused on money making. And that's what I did. I just looked at, okay, how can I stand out in this market as a young, you know, f- back then I was fit, now I'm fat. But, um, you know, how can I stand out then and use what strengths can I use that other 20, well, I was 23, turned 24 and I, you know, a month after I arrived or so, like, what can I use? And that's what I did. I just focused on what I could use and then I just double down on those strengths. So it sounds to me like you're very goal-orientated, right? From the beginning, you would set a goal and then go after it till it was accomplished. Yes. I, you know, it was always about mission for me as well. And that happens today. And that's, that's also a weakness at points because sometimes, you know, if you've got teams and you've got individuals that you've got to look after, there's really three things you've got to take care of. You've got to take care of the mission, you've got to take care of the group, and you've got to take care of the individual. And sometimes the individual takes over or takes priority over the group and the mission. Sometimes the mission just has to be done and damn the torpedoes and who cares about what the group thinks or the individual thinks. So it's adjusting that. And when you're in the military, a lot of it is mission-focused. And when you're out of the military, a lot of it is you know, getting the group consensus, getting the group buy-in, you know, supporting the individual. So you know, I understood the functional approach to leadership, but then I had to adjust it. But it always, you know, in the back of my mind, it's always been about, okay, this is the goal, Tyrone. What do you do? What resources can you use to get there? If you don't have the resources now, how can I get them? I'm always looking at the how rather than like, oh, I I don't have it yet. You know, I don't have a solution yet, but I know I'm going to get one. Let's think of how I can get there. So yeah, very much focused on mission and goal. That's amazing. So that's a little bit about where you come from. So what are you working on now? Where is your focus put? So at the moment, I am focused in a couple of different business areas and building out executive recruitment for the advertising and media industry across Asia is something that I've been doing for a number of years now. And I want to continue doing that, but I want to change up the strategy a little bit and start to focus really exclusively on very senior level people and become more of an advocate for some of the large global holding companies. And even then some of the consumer goods companies like e-commerce platforms like Amazon's a huge client for us. It's a seven-figure client. is helping them to build out their creative teams and their marketing teams and PR and communication. So that's where I really specialize. But I want to be in the realm where you know, when I help them build out their management team, 
you know, the fees are the fees are high five to six figure fees. That's that's what I want. So I'm really at a point now of transitioning to that. And then on the coaching side, you know, the wedding dress business, we have that. That's number one in Japan as an independent boutique. Yeah, you do over 400 weddings a year, I believe, I read. 400 weddings a month. 400 weddings a month. Holy moly. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I was doing my research on you. I was reading. I saw 400 weddings. I didn't realize that was a month. Yeah, it's a month. Yeah, a year you wouldn't make any money. But some stores only do 400 a year. That's an interesting thing. But yeah, we do 400 a month. We've got a down pat. We're organically ranked number one on, on Google and Yahoo in Japan. You know, you have to be, and that's without spending a dime on ad spend because we've been in the market since, you know, year 2000. And so we get a ton of free traffic from that. And as a result, you know, we deliver just absolute premium service, premium customer engagement. They love us. These customers that we served 10, 15 years ago still send us gifts every year on their anniversaries and stuff. It's, it's a great business. So that runs smoothly. I started that with my partner. That was the first business that I started. And then partner became my wife. And she's, she's really taken that to the next level. And I had the opportunity to be able to start, you know, get into the recruitment side because I saw great money and great success and the ability to help people. Like the wedding dress business is the same. You're involved in their life at the most optimum time of their life. They're so excited. They're getting married. They're happy. The majority of cases, the families are happy. So you're surrounded by this happiness. It's an awesome, awesome thing to deliver that, you know, be a part of their wedding. So that's cool. And then on the recruitment side, you know, I'm helping out people develop their careers. I'm helping out executives build out their other, you know, their teams, their management teams. I'm helping companies achieve their goals. So that's also really, it's a win-win-win as well. You know, everyone's happy to be involved. And I tell you what, when you're dealing with executives across Asia and I'm, I'm bringing in people from America, from UK, from South, you know, from all around the world into the Asian markets, it's exciting because I've got connections now in, you know, all the Fortune 500s and, you know, many of them have become friends. So I can, you know, I can engage with these high-level guys at the biggest companies in the world as friends and the amount of advice that I've got from it and help is I mean, it's tremendous. I mean, they're not entrepreneurs. They, you know, they've decided that the corporate world is is for them, which is great. But they they are really helpful to me, and that's been great. So what I did notice that a lot of the stuff that I did for corporate executives, and we're talking CEOs, you know, the C level suite guys, right? So yeah, CEOs, CFOs, yep, CFOs, all those kind of guys. That's where I really love to deal with. The other side was that when I was coaching many of them. Because these guys also have the same fears and concerns. Everyone has it. It's natural to have fear about, you know, your career and developing yourself and making a move and all that. Even the big boys, you know, they, they, they have fear and doubt. So I would help them um, with that. And, and a part of the process as well was like I, I wanted them to be found by the top recruiters. So I was teaching them like, okay, your LinkedIn, you've got to change it up. Your LinkedIn looks horrible you know, this is showcasing who you are. And I used to, as a part of the fee, you know, that's where I put my time as well. And they would be paying fees of 31 to 80, you know, 80,000 to use my services, right? So it was a, a large chunk. Now, most of these people, they're expats coming over to the Asian market, or these are already C-level people that are inside the Asia market? It was both. It was people coming from outside and people inside. And it still is. It's a split probably... It's easier, obviously, if they're in the Asian markets to deal with them. If they're brand new to the market, it's harder. But, you know, I've brought people from all over the world into 
Asia for the first time, but I'd say that's 30% of the business. 70% would be locating expats in this market and then moving them to you know their direct competitors or, or indirect competitors, whatever it may be. So it sounds like you've taken HR and headhunting and then kind of merged it with LinkedIn and marketing. Is that right? Well, yeah. What I found was that these people didn't know how to promote themselves on LinkedIn properly. And they were just doing a horrible job of it. It's just horrible. It's a CV. They basically cut and pasted their CV. And then I realized as a business owner as well, when I started to look around, there are other business owners that were, they're trying to engage other business owners to sell their product or service. Their LinkedIn was also just CV-based style profiles. They were horrible. They weren't sales. They weren't client-facing pages. And um, they weren't getting ranked. No one's finding them because they're titling things wrong. Everything's wrong about their profile. What I slowly did over the years was I realized what works and what doesn't work on LinkedIn. And that's from trial and error? How did you learn these Trial from error and just doing it over it, training guys, training my consultants how to use it properly. As a partner in, in the firm, you know, my job was to make sure that the people were doing their job well. So I could see how they were using it and how they should be using it. And then I layered strategies on top. So basically, it came down to I quickly developed a method that I could get a business owner who really had a horrible looking LinkedIn profile that they just weren't generating business with. And it's crazy because LinkedIn's got 500 million business account, you know, people on it. That's 70% of all American business people have a profile on LinkedIn. That's, that's insane. Yeah, that's huge numbers, huge numbers. Yeah, 30% of the world's business people are on LinkedIn. And now with Microsoft purchasing it, they are now integrating it into their ecosystem. So it's only going to increase. How much did they purchase it for? $26 billion. $26 billion. Yeah. Wow. Pretty, you know. So that's Microsoft's play into social media, I suppose. Well, you think about the data, right? They've already got a billion people using Microsoft. Now you add another 500 million and you integrate that into your sales software, you integrate it into your Outlook, you integrate it into your every part of the process of Windows itself. It's now integrated. When you use Windows 10, there's it can integrate so you, you get pop-ups of notifications of LinkedIn. So they're looking at it as a massive data ecosystem. And if you're selling Dynamics, you know, their CRM sales program is Dynamics 365. So instead of having a blank canvas, you can open up, you know, Dynamics 65 and you can pull a person in and it sucks in all their LinkedIn data. So when you do a sales call to these people, it's no longer cold. You've got all this information available without you doing any work, you know, so they're, they're smart. They've done a good job. And so I guess that brings into your tagline, selling made social. Exactly. I thought that was really interesting when I read that. Yeah, and that's what it is. And that's what LinkedIn, if you do it well, you are selling socially. And what's that meaning? The meaning of that is, is the basic of the social selling is that, you know, today people are starting to make more purchasing decisions based on their social network, whether that's a professional social network or a personal social network, but people are using that more and more. So when you're selling, you want to be in their network. You want to be an advocate for them. You want to be on their side of the table. So what I've done is I've coached to that. I, I devised a program that gets people, that gets business owners, entrepreneurs using LinkedIn properly to become a non-stop lead generation machine for them. They're not spending any money on advertising. They're not suffering from that you know, famine feast cycle that 
that occurs with people in business where you've got all these clients, then it goes dead and you've got to rebuild your pipe. Mm -hmm, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm showing them exactly how to get in there, multiple strategies, and not only do it so it becomes nonstop, but do it so they're in there for less than seven hours a week. Because let's face it, I find LinkedIn as boring as dirt. And I, <laughs> even though it's your business, even though it's my business, I don't want to be in there any more than I have to be. And so far this year, my average has been 4.3 hours a week. And how do I know that? I use rescue time on my computer to track what I do so I can analyze and I can stop myself going to certain sites. And, you know, it, it just keeps me efficient. And this year, it's been an average of 4.3. And it will be a multiple six-figure earner for me on LinkedIn on 4.3 hours a week. And that's what I'm teaching these other business owners. I know there's lots of LinkedIn coaches out there. I know that I don't care about what my competition is doing. I don't even see them as competition. I just know that I'm a business owner and I'm teaching them. And I, I love to give my opinion, as you can see. Yeah, so. I, I, I understand. <laughs> no, that's awesome. So what would make you different than other coaches? Why would someone want to hire you opposed to someone else that they would find for LinkedIn for what we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, looking, I, I did an analysis of all the coaches I could find. And, you know, the success that they're having has largely been after they became a coach on LinkedIn. So they're making money on LinkedIn about being a coach on LinkedIn. But they don't have a background in actual business. They did one deal or they did something, but I haven't seen someone who's generated multi-millions. I've had 151 straight months of revenue from LinkedIn, personally in my pocket at the mid-five-figure level every month for 151 months average. My firm is making 81% of the revenue and it's a multi seven figure number comes from LinkedIn and I'm, I'm using it still as a business owner. What I'm coaching to is I understand exactly what these other business owners and entrepreneurs are feeling. They're feeling overwhelmed. They don't know where to start. They don't know how much time to put in. They don't know where to focus. You know, there's just so, so many gaps and they get on LinkedIn and they're just like, oh, this sucks. And they get off really quick and they get no result. Well, they spend hours on it and still get no results. So I'm coming from a point of view, it's like I go into LinkedIn with a spear gun, not with a net. And I only focus on the most likely people to respond to me. So I'm focusing only, and I use different strategies to locate only the active players. And I do everything that is focused on getting myself to a revenue event. That's all I focus on. There's all these different bells and whistles and all these other guys are teaching these, do these viral posts and blah, blah, blah. It's like, that's just a band-aid. Like you need a total strategy and you've got to fit it into a real business person's lifestyle. That's what I do. I, I show them exactly what a real business person is doing, how to do it effectively and efficiently and get in and out, you know, following workflow processes, like really coming in with a proper strategy and not getting distracted and not using that as your new site and you know information gathering site for you it becomes a lead generation tool and that's all it's there for you to just absolutely dominate you know establish your reputation become a leader in your field very very quickly as well even if you've just gone into the business there's techniques that I teach my guys that you don't have to have been working in the industry for tens of years if you do it right if you leverage third party if you leverage other influences and if you do it efficiently and following a workflow process, you can get in, get out, make a lot of money, have a lot of success, help a lot of people, 
and just use it efficiently like a business owner wants to use it. So, you know, you have the time to work on your business. We always hear this, right? Don't work in your business, work, work on, on your, your business. business. Absolutely. That makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. I love that. Just going to take a quick break. Okay, new book is here. It's called Expat Secrets, How to Make Giant Piles of Money, Live Overseas, and Pay Zero Taxes. This book took me seven months to write and publish, and it's a culmination of some of the best stuff I've learned over my 20 years living as an expat. I cut out all the crap and tried to give you the real meat with this book. If you ever wanted to live overseas, or if you are already living overseas and you want to take things to the next level, to legally reduce your tax bill, to live a more international life, and get the best of everything planet Earth has to offer, then you must go to Amazon right now and purchase your copy of Expat Secrets. Pause the episode and go take a look. It's cool. I'll wait. Seriously, you guys are going to love this. Enjoy the book. So if my listeners wanted to take a couple of actionable steps, say three things that they could do right now after listening to this interview, what would you suggest them to do to optimize their LinkedIn profile? Well, yeah, and, and this is the thing, like the optimization of the profile is one part of at least a kind of 10-part strategy that you have to do. But at least with your LinkedIn, the first thing to do, if you are selling a service or a product and you're dealing with other business professionals, whether they're business owners or specialized professionals like lawyers or real estate agents or something like that. But not if you're selling like, you know, cosmetics to, you know, a woman on the, you know, it's not going to work. If you are a B2B professional selling to other business owners, you have to change your profile from what it is now, which I would say 99% of your listeners have as probably a cut and paste job of their resume or a version of their resume. And they use titles like owner or business owner or entrepreneur or founder. Now, if I am selling a service, right? So I'm selling, well, you know, I'm selling as a LinkedIn lead generation. Now I'm the founder of the company, but you would not see my LinkedIn. You will not see the title just founder sitting there by itself, right? It has no context. So people have to get rid of their egos. And the first thing I would do with your titles on your experience area and your headline of LinkedIn, I would change it to the popular keywords that get searched when someone wants to find what you do. Okay, so it's not who you are, but it's what you do. So for me, it'd be like lead generation, nonstop leads, B2B leads. And I would make sure that in every part of my profile where I can edit a title or a headline, I would change it to the keywords and not what I am, not that I'm the president, not that I'm a founder, because no one's searching for that. Another way to think of it, if someone went to Google and wanted to find the service or product that you sell, what would they search for? What would the keywords be? And you can actually use Keyword Planner in Google to find that and see the amount of search traffic and then use the top five keywords and put them into your profile at strategic points, that being the titles in the experience sections because they are indexed by LinkedIn and they are indexed by Google. 
and you will be found on Google as well as you build authority. So that's that's the first thing. That's incredible. I never even thought about that myself because I think that if I look back at my LinkedIn profile, I most likely have founder or owner for my business right. opposed to... Yeah, it's doing nothing for you. Yeah, nothing I, for you. I guess that's being very strategic with these types of things. I think probably when I set up my LinkedIn profile, I just rushed through it and thought of yeah. it more just like a a Facebook page for business. And I'm already able to tell that that's not really the case at all. That's right. So you've, you've got to change the titles and then you've got to change the way that you write your information. No one cares if you're responsible for launching ABC. No one cares if you you know did 10 years of account, whatever. You have to focus it towards a soft sell of your product, establishing yourself as an authority. And of course, when someone comes to your profile, they're going to read it. But if it's one big chunk of text in one big paragraph, no one's going to read that. So a second tip is I suggest that you break your paragraphs up into a framework and you use little subheadings, you use symbols inside the text. So like I use, for example, you know, what I do, how I do it, what other people say. So use some headlines that you know, are a natural flow But what it allows is when someone comes to your profile after you send them a connection request, you've got about seven to 10 seconds to impress them before they just click off, okay, or decide to accept you or not. Now, I've seen this in practice with, you know, hundreds of recruiters. This is what people do, and it's the general thing. So if you make it very easy for someone to digest your content and you have this framework and you have these subtitles, they can choose what they want to read. Now, if I see a paragraph, I have no choice. I've either got to read it and like find the information myself, or I just can't be bothered and I don't read it. But if I, if I break my text up into a framework of subtitles, it allows me like, okay, yeah, I do want to read what other people say about him. Oh, yes, I do want to read where you've seen me before, CNN, Forbes, or whatever. So, you know, make it easy for the reader of your profile to choose what they want to read, and it will just increase the chance they're going to actually spend more than that seven seconds and click and accept you. So that's the second big hint that I should think. And then the third one is, so you're changing from CV style and you're changing to a client-facing sales promotional style landing page, basically. Now, there's a test. If you go too far to the right and you make it too salesy, People are going to be turned off it just as they were if it was a horrible CV-looking site, okay? So the best thing is use the gut feel. And I did this with my coaching students the other day. We had a live coaching Q&A session, and one of the guys pulled up his profile, and he made a new cover photo, and he had like an e-book to download. He had some flashy title, and I just said, oh, God, this is – instantly, this just makes me feel – This I just feel salesy, and I feel if I accept you – the next thing I'm going to get is a big value vomit from you, meaning you're just going to value, you know, vomit all this stuff into my inbox that I didn't ask for, but that you think it's valuable, but it's clearly not because I didn't ask for it. So I wouldn't connect to you. And then we cleaned his profile. We took off that. And then we asked some other people, what do you think of this? And so, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Well, he's a professional. He's a professional. Oh, you know, it changes. So the best thing, if you make your profile, after you've re focus it to be a, a promotional sales focus one. Check with people. Just ask them. What do you, when you see my profile, like look at it for 10 seconds and then ask them, what do you feel? And the feel is actually really, really powerful. And if people feel like, oh, it's kind of salesy, 
you've gone too far, just bring it back a notch. Bring it back a notch. Yeah, you want to have the doctor frame, not the sales guy. You don't see doctors on the street handing out flyers for their business, right? They're in the office, you go to them. So one of the words that you just brought up is very interesting to me, the value vomit. I've seen that you've been posting some things on social media about this. I think you even had a t-shirt made. Yes. Can you kind of explain this concept? Because I think this is pretty contrarian to what a lot of people teach in online marketing. Yeah, for sure. In context, certainly in context of LinkedIn, when you are connecting with people for the first time that have no idea, so a cold lead, what I see is that people come into my inbox and they drop a value bomb. That's what they think they're dropping. And this is it's getting taught by so many people. It's like, offer value, offer value. And I think either the teachers aren't being specific enough or the students have misinterpreted what they mean. And I think it could be a bit of both. Picture this, you're in a networking event and I see you and that you're standing there and maybe you've got a nice jacket on, you're carrying a nice briefcase, you're holding a glass of red wine, your hair looks like it's just been freshly cut. I've got all this data and I would walk up to you and say, oh, hi, great. Wow, I love that briefcase you got. Where did you get that? And then you'd say, oh, I got it from here. And I'd say, oh, awesome. And, you know, I see, you know, you like that Perrier. How does that taste? Whatever. You start with the conversation of reality. It starts off with small statements of observation. Uh, It's a statement, it's a question, or it's an opinion. And it's short and sharp, right? And then it builds up to, longer sentences. And that's rapport. You're building rapport, right? Now, what happens on LinkedIn is people, this happens to me all the time. I post something, they like the first two posts. I'm like, okay, liked, liked in sequence. So they like, 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 and they do it really quickly. So they obviously didn't read it. And then I get the connection request. Then I connect. And then the next thing I get this email from them. And it's like, hi, Tone, I understand you're a coach. Maybe you'd like um, some SEO help. Here's a document you can download about SEO. And here's a a PDF that we wrote that others found really interesting. And here's blah, 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 blah. And it's like, well, listen, none of that are my problems. Not one of them. So for me, none of that is value at all. That is just a value vomit. You've just vomited into my inbox. (laughs) Now, how hard would it be to like stop and... It's very graphic, very graphic there, Tyron. (laughs) Right, but that's what it is, right? You know, rather than connecting to me like we would do in real life and say, oh, hi, Ty. Hey, I noticed you were in the army. You know, my dad was in the army. I'd be, oh, cool, what was he? And then we'd we'd start with a bit of rapport. And then you start to dig, you start to uncover the problem and say, I see you're a LinkedIn coach. Where are you getting your leads from? Is it LinkedIn or, you know, do you use Facebook? And I say, yeah, I use Facebook, but I don't have much success. Oh, Really? Yeah, we've got a few other coaches that have had success. Would you like to know what we've done to help them? Right? You ask them. And then I would say, yeah, I would. And then I give a value bomb. And then it's a real value bomb. It's not a value vomit because I have diagnosed exactly, you know, they've diagnosed exactly what my problem is, what my challenge is, and then they deliver tailored content, tailored value to that. And that's real value delivery. That, you know, everything else, if you don't know what their problem is and you just dump your value bomb in their inbox, you have just vomited in their inbox. That makes perfect sense. That reminds me of one of my favorite quotes. Mm -hmm. And it's basically that prescription without diagnosis is malpractice. Absolutely. So if you have not even identified what the problem is, and now you're already trying to give advice to someone, yep. it just highlights how wrong this is. And, and I have the same experiences, not just on LinkedIn, but on many profiles. Everything. Everyone's like that. Everything. I get contacted from someone. Hey, how's it going? Uh, would you like the secrets to mm-hmm. being financially free? I'm mm-hmm. like, 
yeah, nah, nah, mate, I'm cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, nah. And then, okay, well, here's my free ebook. Download it. And I'm like, I didn't ask for this. <laughs> you, do you know anything about me? Yeah. Do you know my background? Do you know my history? Exactly. You know, like you haven't even identified how you could help or if you could help or, yeah. or who I am. Exactly. They're vomiting on you. And it's horrible. And not only that, it's putting me in a state I call a forced reciprocity. You know, one of the key principles of influence that Robert Cialdini, you know, highlighted in the 80s, you know, reciprocity, likability, consistency. Well, they're forcing me to reciprocate. Like, and I hate that because we all have that. We all suffer from, from that. It's a social norm. Someone does something for you. You feel obliged to do something for someone else. So there's also that. It's kind of like, you know, and people use it as a tactic, but they're using it wrong because it's mm -hmm. kind of, I see it as not only is it a value vomit, not a value bomb, but it's also a tempt of forced reciprocity. And I resent that. So I just delete them. So where did people learn these types of tactics? Every single marketing guru out there who says, you've got to give value first, give value first, give value first. And yes, you've got to give value but it has to be they're missing the second part, strategic asked for value, yeah, not just like what you think is value, because we all have a different idea of what's valuable and what's not. And unless you, you know, exactly that, unless you diagnose it, you know, you don't walk into a doctor's surgery and, and you say, I've got a sore arm. He goes, yep, I'm gonna, I want to cut your toe off. And you're like, my arm's sore. Yes, but I'm really good at cutting toes off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right? You're like, okay, back off, crazy. That's a brilliant analogy. I like that yeah. very much. So that's what they do. And the teachers are teaching that. And you see it all the time in some of the major groups, you know, the click funnels groups and stuff. You'll see, you know, offer value, offer value, and then they'll buy. They'll buy the small stuff, and then they'll buy the big stuff. I don't subscribe to that either, to be frank. But, you know, that's a different story. But, yeah, offer value for sure. So with your own funnels. Mm. Do you not take people up a value ladder like they teach in ClickFunnels? No. Do you go straight from diagnosing straight into coaching or how do you structure your funnels? Yeah, I went that route as well and I didn't have success. I know other people have success, but for what I wanted to achieve was high ticket item coaching. I didn't find it worked well and I didn't want to give band-aids because you know people think, oh, okay, I've got a solution now and they go away and it doesn't actually solve a problem. So my funnel... I've got a multi-step funnel. There's a, you know, I use LinkedIn as well, but most people, they're going to be using Facebook, right, for certain funnels. But it's, it's a Facebook ad to a 45-minute masterclass to a scheduler. They book me, then I get them on a call, and then I sell them on the call, or I enroll them on the call. I shouldn't say sell, but I talk to them, and I, I give them a solution. And then at the end, if they want to have me help them with that solution – then we talk about, and I make an offer of coaching if they're a cool person. I only work, I only work with cool people. I, I'm, you know, I'm at a point now where I get to pick and choose who I work with. So I don't offer everyone, absolutely not. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they would be able to find this at masterclass.sellingmadesocial.com. Yeah, they'll right? be able to watch the, the masterclass and, and just see my style and see what it's about. And if it makes sense for them and they've determined that LinkedIn is a channel, then you know we talk about. You know, I, I will analyze what their current situation is. I'll do an audit of their strategies and I'll tell them what they have to fix. And if they want me to coach them through that over a period of time, then, then we'll make an offer. And that's my funnel. I don't give a $5 product, a $30 product, a $4.97 product, nothing like that. It doesn't work. You know, my products are mid to high, you know, four-figure products but they are a full solution. It is, there's no Band-Aid here. It's like you work with me 
you get an absolute solution that you will have forever. And, you know, your problem is solved. I will solve your problem. 100% of confidence that I will solve your problem. And when you're doing that, then that also means then I don't want to sell, you know, a thousand two ninety seven dollars products and have a thousand people to manage because you simply cannot. So quality over quantity. Yeah, it's too much. There's easier ways of doing it. Yeah, I understand that completely. So when did you have this aha moment, this realization that you didn't want to work with the masses, you wanted to work with really this select few? Well, always. I mean, my recruiting has always been like that as well. I mean, every day I, I have at least 12 to 15, if not more people reach out to me every day asking And I just say, that's not what I do. I'm sorry. I come to you. I choose who I kind of work with. It sounds arrogant, but it's not. I mean, you know, we we have two things that we can, you know, we can make money. I I know how to make money. So money's not an issue for me anymore. What the issue is, is time. And, you know, I can stop working now. I don't have to work for another day in my life if I wanted to, but I'd go stir crazy. But I'd love, (laughs) I now love helping people. I, I really love, as you can see again, I love giving my opinion. So when I get paid mm-hmm, to give my mm-hmm. opinion, it's even better. <laughs> it's even better. Absolutely. I, I agree with you um, there. <laughs> and it's, it's a lot of freedom because it's, you know, I had my coaching call this morning. It's, you know, two hours of giving my opinion, answering their questions. I love that. They fire a question. Boom, I've got the answer. And you see their face like, oh, cool. Yeah, you just got me clarity. I love that. It's such an awesome feeling to do that. And so what I do, I pick who I work with. Yes, I have a funnel. And yes, people book. But literally, I would knock back more people than I offer because, you know, maybe they come across, they just, they don't seem fun. And my coaching program goes over a number of weeks. So I've got to give my time to them. And if I'm going to give my time to them, you know, I have a policy. It's FTO, fun things only. That's what I do. I only do fun things. Mm -hmm, Everything mm -hmm. else I outsource. I don't build my funnels, by the way. I get someone else to build them. I, I hate that stuff. I don't run my Facebook ads. I have someone else do it because... That's not fun to me. What's fun to me is getting that person on that call and uncovering the truth for them, getting clarity for them, and then providing a solution and seeing them go like, oh, that's what I need. That is exactly what I need. And I feel like I feel great. They feel great. And I make money. And then they, get, they make money because they start, you know, they start a process that actually works for them. And the same with, mm-hmm, with the mm-hmm. coaching is just that, I only work with people I like. So have you found that there's like a real number of the amount of people that you can handle at one time? I'm just thinking from my listeners, if they work as coaches or consultants, yeah. what have you found as for how many people you can handle yeah. and still keep things fun? I think for one person, an individual with no kind of support, you can probably anywhere from, because it's a group setting as well, mine's, mine's a combination of modules and then group coaching and individual responses. We have a private, another secret private Facebook group and stuff like that. I really believe that if you're enrolling and you know 20 to 40 people a month by yourself, that's probably manageable. After that, you need to have some more help. So it's not like having you know you do this product launch and have 500 to 1,000 people or you know 200 people hit at once. I think, you know, 20 to 40, like guys that are really efficient and doing it full time could, could handle that, at, you know, every month enrolling 40 new people who start, a, you know, start the program. Is it, the programs are over a number of weeks and people are at different stages of the program, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I find that, and, you know, I've got other businesses, this is just, you know, one of them, but 
I find that a, a good number um, would would max me out. And I've done that before. This new program, I've got a I've got a smaller group going through at the moment. But yeah, I would probably look at twenty to forty being max where I would be comfortable that I can give the attention that they deserve because they're paying a, a you know making a good investment and a high investment. But I can keep individuals accountable and I can handle that in the amount of hours I dedicate it to every week, I can do that. But over that, I think it would be pretty hard. I think you'd have to really have some great quality control processes in place. So in all of your studies and all of your working with clients, what have you identified are some of the main skills that people need to develop if they want to be successful? Yeah, that's a good one. I think decision-making, like just making a decision. I truly believe no decision is bad or good. A decision is just a decision. The outcome is going to happen, and you just got to run with it, right? And nearly every decision you make, if a decision and the outcome then goes wrong, I can never think of a decision I've made that I haven't been able to reverse if it went wrong. What I hear is, even if you make a decision and you make the wrong decision, it's never going to be fatal to your business. Well, I mean, that could be fatal if you don't get on it fast enough, but... The fact is, just make the decision because once a decision is made, everything flows from after that. If you are sitting there and you are procrastinating on a decision and it's taking time, you are losing. And if you fear that you're making a negative outcome and you're attaching that to what a decision is, you never make decisions. So you've got to train your mind just to like, okay, decide, 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 and and train yourself to know, you know when enough is enough and using that kind of gut, using the experiences, you, you know, even in ambiguous situations is kind of understanding, okay, based on my experiences before, we're going to do this and you just do it. And you know, the same thing, if it goes wrong, it's quickly identifying it and reversing it as quick as possible. And, and I really can't think of a decision that I've made that I haven't been able to reverse out of. It's just been a case of, how long it took me to reverse out of it. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Um, I think decision-making ability is just critical. And the most successful people I meet are the ones that are instantly making decisions. They're getting the information and they're just, they're deciding. So action always trumps inaction. So how do you exercise this muscle, this decision-making muscle? Do you just start making decisions about everything in your life or do you have to be selective about what you're doing? Oh, I, I think it's a case of if you find yourself I mean, obviously, you know, am I going to wear red or or blue today is, you know, whatever. But if it's a business decision that you're making, I think you've got to put time. If you're really struggling, if you're a person that really struggles with it, you've got to impose time limits on yourself and say, okay, you know, this, this really, you know, what's the worst thing that could happen and what's the best thing? So, you know, I I like to focus on what's the best thing that could happen here, you know, and really focus on that. And of course, you, you, you have to be aware of risks, but you know, if that best thing just far outweighs the worst thing, then I, I, it's easy to make a decision in my mind. I just, I just decide. And if you are as someone that sits on information, really analyze the last, you know, three to five decisions, like major decisions or even, you know, somewhat major decisions, analyze what you had to have to make a decision and look at it and decide what you can cut out. Like, do you really need to speak to three mates or three, you know, do you really need to run this past your wife? Do you really need to, you know, go in and do three hours of research? Like really look at how you make your decisions, 
what is your process and just write it down what the process is that you go through what are the factors that influence you when you make a decision and see what you can cut out and just trust it so how you can streamline things to make things more concise and uh be more selective perhaps about the information that you're taking in yeah absolutely That sounds amazing because I think that a lot of people fall into that trap where they look at so much information on making a decision or making a choice about something that they end up becoming paralyzed because of an overabundance of data, of information. But the whole paralysis through analysis, right? Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. that's, that's to be avoided. And I haven't, I really haven't met someone in business. I'm I'm talking, you know, seven figure owners, eight figure owners, nine figure owners that weren't just amazing at decisions. They were just, it just came to them because you're constantly being creative with your decisions. And when you choose to be that person as well, the more decisions you make, the quicker and quicker it becomes. It's a practice skill. So if you're not, mm-hmm, if you're mm-hmm. not doing it, and then of course, all the small stuff to clear your mind so you don't have that clutter, the whole thing of like, you know, how Steve Jobs used to wear just, he and Mark Zuckerberg, they wear the same T-shirt and all that. The same clothes every day so that they yeah. don't fatigue their decision-making right. muscle before it comes time to actually use it. Yep. Yeah. I've heard that before. It's quite different than what I would have assumed, but, um, but it actually makes perfect sense. Yep. So what you're saying actually is perfectly Absolutely. in line with that. You know, our wedding dress business, the same, my wife even, you know, they have a, a certain uniform and she just, that's, She's got three versions of that, and that's all she wears. And she wears it every day. There's no thinking. I have. I like wearing shorts. I just wear shorts because I don't know. I just like shorts. So I have these like three, four pairs of shorts, the same shorts, and I have a white selling made social t-shirt. I have a black selling made social t-shirt, and like two of each. And I just, I don't spend time thinking about. Of course, I'm going to go out and meet someone or dress up, but you know, in my day, it's just I try to take. And that's why you follow routines as well, right? If you, if you follow a morning routine, then you don't waste time. Your brain isn't making decisions. And it's funny because, you know, I'm a business owner. My wife's a business owner. We have our businesses. When we come together at night, you know, what's for dinner? None of us, we don't want to make a decision. We're like, you decide. No, you decide because we've been making decisions all day. <laughs> Absolutely. So you want someone else to take control at that point. You want to give up control of the exactly. things that are perhaps not as important. I understand that, definitely. So I'm very curious to hear. I know that you have children. In the future, say in 20 years, what do you think the skills are going to be in, say, 15, 20 years that are really going to be helpful for them that maybe we don't really have at this point mm-hmm. in our lives? What's a future thing that the next generation should be learning? I think they have to be able to reconnect with people with communications and you know one thing that's never going to be replaced i believe with ai and all these kind of stuff is being able to empathize with someone being able to sympathize mm-hmm, with someone mm-hmm. and being able to uncover their true problem and understand if you're getting the truth or not i think ai is going to have a very very hard time with that so any job or any entrepreneurial thing that you do and i'm going to be teaching my kids is like really learn how to build that rapport with people, how to uncover their pain, and then how to be able to serve that pain. So you become, you know, at night, you've just got to think, everyone's awake at night thinking about some problem that they have. Now, if you can uncover that and you can be the person that solves that, 
you're always going to be making money in your life. That's amazing. When I first started asking this question on the show, the responses that I expected to get from people were more technical things, more future things that, you know, exactly AI or or industries that didn't exist right now. But the common theme that I'm getting from people is always communication. Mm-hmm. And it's always bringing people back to, to the roots mm-hmm. of what it is to be a human, what it is to be a man or a woman. And it all has to do about relationships and communications and how you interact with one another. So that's really surprising for me. <laughs> and at the same time, it makes absolute perfect sense to me as well. Right, absolutely. And, that, and that's why I think, you know, if I did a degree as well, went through that route, I have uh, honors in science and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, we used to tease people that were doing arts degrees and communications degrees. And, you know, we saw as a bachelor of attendance and, you know, When you graduate, you know, I'll be asking you for my fries and stuff. But I tell you what, those now, those people now, that's the prime time to be someone who's studying in the communications field, who's studying in in the arts and learning how to write well, learning how to uncover that, learning how to get emotion from people. And if they can wrap it up with some sales techniques and problem solving, they're going to make money forever. Yeah, that's incredible because I grew up in the 80s and 90s and I thought the same thing. I looked at some of the degrees that some of my friends were doing and I, I just thought it was mm. I thought it was laughable. But now, actually, they're doing very well and very successful. And actually, that's the type of thing that you want to study. And they were actually ahead of the curve, mm-hmm. but we didn't even realize that's it. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. So that talks a little bit about formal education. I'm really curious. I know you are an avid reader, and I know we've talked maybe 100 different times about audiobooks, and I've gotten mm. really good recommendations from you. What are some of the other things? Do you do any coaching yourself? Because I know you work as a coach to other people. Do you take any coaching? Do you take any courses or study or any type of mentoring or things like that? Yep, I am always under coaching. I would spend about anywhere from 15 to 20 Twenty-five thousand a year on coaching and twenty-five thousand US. USD. Yeah, USD. Yeah. I absolutely a hundred percent use coaches, and you know I've had some that have lasted for several years, and some that are like a short-term thing. I just needed them to get me through uh, an issue, and you know I just believe that you know every problem is solvable, and and there's always a way to win, right? There's always a way to win. And the easiest way is to find someone who's won before and, and won really well and, and then ask them, show me how you did it <laughs> and I'll pay them. Mm-hmm, and that's mm-hmm. the thing, like how much is a problem worth to you? You know, m- most of these problems that I get fixed, for me, they're priceless. So when they say, oh, that's eight grand to do that, I'm like, okay, here, here you go. And they're like, oh, okay. Um, because it's, mm-hmm, yeah, I'm leaning on their years, if not decades of experiences. I'm leaning on the thousands hundreds of thousands of dollars that they've lost. You know, of course, you've got to screen your coaches. You know, you've got to do your due diligence, of course. And that's why it really comes from me. A lot of it is comes through re- referrals and, and stuff. And I'll give them a shot at the start. And if I like them, then I'll go, you know, I'll continue to use them and I'll recommend them. But absolutely, mm-hmm, coaches, mm-hmm. it's quintessential for me, for my wife as well. She has a, a billionaire as a coach and that's just awesome. Billionaire as in with a B? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's who I want as my next coach. I think we're going to have to talk off the record and figure that one out. Yeah, he started two companies that have you know, be, become public and they're huge, huge multi-billion dollar companies. So, you know, you've really, you know, if you're fortunate to find a great coach, it's, it's like using them and, 
And when you, when you are under coaching, you've got to be coachable. So you've got to empty your cup. You've got to come in with an open mind. And if you're paying them, then do the work. You know, you turn up, you do the work. And sometimes they'll make you uncomfortable. Yeah. Sometimes you're going to have to get resourceful. Sometimes they're going to make you do things that you just you naturally wouldn't do yourself. But it works. So you've got to get you know you you've got to put yourself into uncomfortable situations. So what would be your process for finding a good coach? If my listeners wanted to go out and, and they agree with me and they agree with you and they decide that coaching is absolutely number one priority, what process would they go to go through? Mm-hmm. To, to select someone because really there are so many people out there who style themselves as coaches. Right, right. Yeah, I think being able to do your due diligence, being able to check out people, and you, you're always going to find that there's talkers and you know everyone's going to have a positive and negative. But what I find is when I find someone that just has an overwhelming positivity whenever I speak to someone, they've got to prove to me that they're earners as well. I don't want to be coached by someone who makes, I mean, you can be coached by someone that makes less than you, but I don't want to be coached by someone that has, you know, less skill in that area as me. I want to see something that's dynamic. Mm -hmm. Facebook's great for that. Many of these coaches run their own groups. Many of them, you know, have certain websites and they've got the testimonials. You know, you can do a lot of checking. And then it really comes down to when you engage with them first and you know, what I do is I listen to how they sell to me, right? Because I've been selling for years. And if they are better at selling than me, the way that they uncover my stuff, and it, I can tell by the end of the call, if I've really given so much and I've, they've really got to the bottom, they've really got to the truth, um, they've really uncovered that problem and have convinced that they can solve it, then they're for me, you know, I... If you just go through the routine and they sell you and you, you don't feel that they digged and they didn't, then you know they're not going to de- be delivering quality as well. So their sales mm-hmm, call or their breakthrough call or their discovery call, whatever they call it with you to, to find out if you're a match, it has to impress me. It really has to impress me. So we're getting close to the end here. Privately, we've talked so many times about books and you've given me some really good recommendations. What do you think like the number one or the number two book that you would encourage other people to read that they would really get some, some real value from? For me, I'm really interested in like the psychology of decisions and the psychology of how to influence people. I really like that. And I, I think I'm a closet psychologist or, or something. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I, I hear that. I hear that. Yeah, <laughs> I really like um, Robert Cialdini. You know, obviously his first book, Influence, which came out in 1984. And when his first book it's came... so monumental. Yeah. Oh, my God. And when his first book came out, it just, it was a dud, really. No one really paid attention. It wasn't until, like, social economists and stuff started to look at it. And then it's become a, you know, everyone talks about the principles of influence, but they don't realize who Pender was this guy. And it's been Mm -hmm. 20 odd years, almost 30 years when he just wrote another book. So, you know, 25 years between books or or so, he wrote wrote another book, came out the end of last year called Presuasion, Presuasion. And yeah, I have it on my shelf. I actually, I actually bought that book after speaking with you, okay. after I, I went straight out to Amazon and bought right. that book. It's incredible. So that's a, you know, it's persuasion, a revolutionary way to influence and persuade. And he kind of drops these value bombs all the way through it. And I've listened to that book probably eight times now. And sometimes wow. I'm like, I will hear something. And I'm, I've heard that seven times before, but then I'm like, wow, 
I can apply this to that. Uh, I've got mm-hmm. so much value from that book. It's just nuts. It's, there's so much in there that you can use. And then I combined it with the book, The Pitch Anything. And, and Pitch Anything, you know, yeah. it's very American and very rah, 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 and kind of aggressive. But I think when I combined it with um, Persuasion, it worked quite well that I could, I could kind of bring the two together um, and, and let them, you know, kind of feed off each other. And when I'm doing presentations or when I'm doing, um, you know, writing copy or anything like that, um, I find them just, just very mindful um, to have. So persuasion and, and, um, and pitch anything. I, pitch yeah, anything. I quite like. Um, and, you know, one of the old classics, which I first read in like 1991 or 92, was by Tony Robbins and it was the... Um, uh, awaken the giant within and i haven't phenomenal yeah book. And such a phenomenal that, that book. book at the time when it came out like i've got the original it's like you look so young in it that book was like a twenty six thousand. if you want to go to the seminar that was that book it was like twenty six thousand dollars to go back in like the early 90s so it'd be like 50 grand today mm-hmm. and he had it all in this like 20 dollar book it was awesome so even today that's a great value book and you know dig it up and and go through it but those those ones I really like uh, um, at the moment, and I'm always listening and reading, and I just find those two I, I quite like because a lot of what I do is is about presenting to people, and you know, really looking for the science of selling and the science of persuasion and and real data, you know, and books that have made based on real data, but then put it in a way that we can storytell. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, I fully, wholeheartedly recommend all of those books. I didn't know that when Persuasion came out originally that it was a dud, because I only read it about two years mm-hmm. ago. And for me, it was just so monumental. Like, it was such a interesting book. I didn't know the story that actually when it came out, it wasn't as popular. Uh, 1984, it was just like, <laughs> yeah, maybe it was before its time, I suppose. It was. It was absolutely before its time, and people didn't know how to apply it. That's amazing. So thank you so much for your time. My goodness, I have so many things here on my notepad that I'm going to go and look up and think about and reflect on. I really appreciate your time there, Ty. If our listeners want to get a hold of you, where is the best place? Where should they reach out to you? Yep, if anyone wants to get me directly, admin at sellingmadesocial.com. Or, you know, go to the Facebook group and look up LinkedIn sales funnels for entrepreneurs. There's a group that I manage there and you'll be able to get me there. Thank you so much for your time, Ty. I'll let you get back to work. I know you're a busy man and we really appreciate you sharing all this value with us. My pleasure. It was great fun. I got to give my opinion. Yes, you did. (laughs) And it was a good opinion. Very, very good opinion. That's amazing. Thanks so much. And hope to have you on the show again, maybe sometime. Love to. Thanks very much. See you later, guys. Okay, I want to read you the reviews from the back of the book that some massively famous people in the international living space have wrote for me. See if you recognize some of these names, okay? So Gregor Gregerson says, In Expat Secrets, Mikkel elegantly describes the many benefits that accrue to those that choose their country of residence and provides practical and timely tips and examples for doing so. This book is a game changer. Leif Simon says, Having lived and worked overseas for more than a quarter century myself, I've seen expats make every mistake under the sun. Save yourself time and energy and learn from someone who has actually done it. Expat Secrets is the book to get you started in your international journey. Edmund John says, 
Having incorporated hundreds of companies from my clients over the last seven years, this book is very helpful for those that are starting out. And Michael Cobb says, a huge thanks to Mikkel for clearly written, concise description of the international experience as lived by a true globetrotting pioneer. Especially refreshing is the chapter on the benefits of raising kids overseas. As the father of two third culture kids, I can personally assure you that no education expands the mind more than growing up overseas. And my good friend David McKeegan wrote the foreword to this book. But I will let you read that yourself when you go to Amazon today and you purchase your copy of Expath Secrets. Thanks, guys. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.